If you could work anywhere in the world, where would you pick? Why would a business decide to base themselves here in Ireland? Is it the crack? Is it the Cade Mila Folgia? Or what about the tax side of things? Over the next hour here on News Talk, we'll hear from the IDA about how they sell Ireland abroad and find out what matters most to businesses looking for a European base. Embedded Tech and Town. Thanks to Salesforce. Celebrating 20 years helping Irish businesses, people and communities grow. This is News Talk. We've heard so much about the presence of technology companies here in Ireland, but how did that come about? We're known as the Silicon Valley of Europe and play home to some of the biggest tech companies in the world. I got the opportunity to sit down with Leo Clancy, the head of technology at the IDA Ireland, and started our conversation by asking him when did Ireland become a tech hub within Europe? You could argue we had that title all the way back into the 80s when we attracted Apple, Dell, Microsoft, Intel, all those great leaders. Um, I suppose in terms of today's tech, those really evolved during the early noughties. And so who did we see? Because we're very much looking at the last 20 years. So the year 2000, and if you think back to then, we were using floppy disks. The Nokia 5110 was the big phone du jour. We had no idea where we were going to end up in terms of today's consumer technology. So what was sort of the turning point back then? It was enabling the internet. So we'd just come over the Y2K bug. I was working at Ericsson at the time. So as an engineer, I was paid very nicely to work one night uh, over 1st of January 2000. Uh, but we'd also had the, the tech crash. And if you look at the late 90s, that was a phase where all the concepts that are alive in today's internet world were there, but the enabling technology wasn't. The ability to store data at massive scale, networks at very high speed, and compute at very high speed. I, I think all those things changed in the following 10 years after the dot-com crash, and that enabled all those business models that effectively failed around 2000 to really take off during the noughties. Before we talk more about uh, sort of the tech companies and so on, the millennium bug, what happened? Nothing. <laughs> I, was, I had a glass of champagne at one point during the evening. <laughs> but what was the fear? You might just remind us because yeah. I remember yeah. it was a huge stressor. Really and was. I watched back some footage recently of tech people, possibly yourself, you know, trying to reassure businesses that, you know, planes won't drop from the sky. Everything's going to yeah. be grand. It it was it was about how how dates were set in technology fundamentally. You know, lots of people when they started coding in the seventies and eighties had used nineteen hundred or zero zero as the reference case. Now, if you were just zero zero and you flip over, you could see the computer systems going gaga when they go into a new into a new century. Okay. And, and that was really the fundamental issue. Most of the issues had been expunged through coding and and code management over the previous couple of years. I was in Egypt on 1st of January to 1999 and I had a call at 2 a.m. where someone said, I've got a millennium bug a year early. <laughs> it turned out not to be that. Uh, but actually most people had done really good work of removing. It's a pretty simple code problem when it comes down to it. Most people had coded it out of their systems and actually it went pretty swimmingly. The first market for the product that I supported was actually New Zealand or around there, somewhere in the Pacific Islands. So we knew by about 10 o'clock the day before that we weren't going to have any problem with the product I supported. So it was all very relaxed by midnight. We were watching the fireworks <laughs> over the docks. Lovely. Uh, so we saw uh, companies like Salesforce come to Ireland in the year 2000. And the transformation that we've seen in Dublin City alone in that time is pretty phenomenal. Mm -hmm. 
Talk to me a bit about the work that the IDA does and has continued to do over the last, you know, however long with those big tech companies to show that Ireland is open for business, is a great place to set your company because we're the European HQ for a lot of these companies. So it's not just a remote office. Absolutely. And what we try to do is something really simple. We try to be on the on the cusp of the new thing, always, always pulling in companies at an early stage of development. So Salesforce is a great example. The company was probably a year old or only launched a year when Dave Dempsey and the team uh, decided that they were going to set up their presence in Ireland. And and that's really the heart of how we stay on top of these technologies. We, we get in early and and get in with even a small presence at an early stage that makes a huge difference and what are the considerations does it vary from company to company as to what they're looking for because you could argue that you know maybe the uk would be better or maybe france or somewhere on mainland europe what is our what's the sales pitch i suppose for ireland yeah we we, we used to have a four-part sales pitch it's varied a little bit now and i don't know off by heart the one through. so <laughs> i'll go back to the old one um talent is a huge motivator for companies and the fact that people have grown that we've grown that talent in a, in an ecosystem that has a huge track record going to the next point is 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 amazing so since the 80s we've had some of the biggest companies in the world produce great talent that's used to running multinational enterprises i'd never discount that we've also got in dublin today 14 of the top 14 fortune 500 tech companies at scale and that's made a big difference you know people talk about tax that does make a big difference corporation tax and tax credits and uh, the technology ecosystem we built to bring out graduates and and integrated research base is very important as well. So it's a mix of all those. I would say talent and track record are the two key ones. The talent point is interesting because I remember when I did my leaving cert in, I think it was 2007, and there was a lot of talk about the tech companies at that time. And there was a lot of talk of how having a European language would be a great asset for you to go into work in one of these big companies because they want to have people who can talk to customers right around Europe, right around the world. I remember, though, reading some headlines that were kind of slating us, saying that, you know, our tech talent here in Ireland isn't up to the standard required of some of these companies. So, you know, do we need to upskill or are we going to just constantly see um, talent being brought in for other countries? Is that something that was addressed or was it just proven not to be the case? I think I think what's proven is that actually being open and being a place that people want to come to means that native language speakers will move here. So actually that superseded the need for Irish people to have languages and and it's meant that we have a much more diverse society. So I think there's been a couple of really strong benefits in in those things. I think it's still useful for Irish people to have foreign languages because, you know, we're, you know, native English speakers tend to be the worst foreign language speakers. Really useful that you can speak in French or German or Spanish, but actually if you're doing sales or customer support for a very expensive or high-end product, doing it as a native speaker in native language tends to have trumped that. So so the requirement hasn't gone away. I would say it's it's probably been superseded by the ability that people want to come here uh, who are native language speakers. And when you are at different events around the world, when you are meeting other companies, do do people know about us? Do people know that Ireland is a great destination for these big tech companies? Or are we still that small island that, you know, some Americans think that they, they all their ancestors are from and that's the height of it? 
depend, depends on who you're speaking to. If you go to China, we're still sometimes ex explaining that we're not Iceland uh, in certain circles, but it is changing. I think among tech circles, there's no doubt. So if you go to any tech company in the world, Ireland is on the map for European presence. So typically people make their operations home, con home continent, usually US for most of our investors, EMEA, Europe, Middle East and Africa and Asia Pacific. And for an EMEA presence to serve a local market, we are always on the map and we're resoundingly well known. I, you know, I started this conversation by talking about Dublin in particular, but as I've traveled more around Ireland, I've seen that a lot of the big tech companies have presence. Like I think Huawei has a base in Athlone. Like we're not just focused on Dublin City anymore. We've never been focused on Dublin City. So Ericsson, who I worked for for 13 years, has an R&D center of over a thousand people in Athlone. Actually, it's a huge center. Uh, EMC and Dell both had separate presences before they merged in Cork. Dell's had a huge presence historically in manufacturing, but that has pivoted to services in Limerick. And Apple, of course, is most famously has 5,000 people in Cork and, and a growing commitment to Ireland. So it's never just been about Dublin. And do you think that's going to continue? You know, have we enticed anyone that's going to come to come? Like, are they all here now? Is this as good, is this as, good as it's going to get? I know there's always more. <laughs> there's always more work. We still, we still need an IDA. So the large part of our job, of course, is looking after the existing investors and, and making sure they continue to succeed and grow. Uh, bringing in new companies is vital, though. You know, if you look at the, I can't remember the stats, but there is a really interesting stat about the length of time that companies stay in the Fortune 500. And there's an enormous amount turnover over even 20 years so we need to constantly be out there finding the new ones salesforce again great example they would have been what we call an emerging company in 2000 uh, dave and the team had the vision and had the previous experience back to the track record point from oracle uh, where they would have known how things were evolving in the market to actually put their faith and their careers on the line and to go into salesforce and they've done an amazing job of building that company Indeed.com is another example. Indeed came to Ireland in, I think, 2012, when they had probably only around 150 people in Austin, Texas, and were le much less known. And now they've got over a thousand people in Dublin and growing very fast. So getting in at that early point is crucial because the leaders of today, some of them will still be the leaders 10 years hence. Some new people will have come in and, and swept the board. So really important to do both. It's not all rosy in the garden with all these companies coming to Ireland. You mentioned there the controversy or the sort of stories that have been around about the tax incentives and so on. But also we've seen, you know, rent shoot up. We've seen um, a huge demand for office space. How uh, acutely aware is the idea of those issues when you're having the conversations with the big tech companies to come here? Hugely aware. So, uh, you know, I think there's two issues. If you take rents, um, two issues. There's the issue that the company will have in terms of making the investment and questioning what happens, and the issues that Irish people have about escalating rents and the contribution of multinationals. So, taking the first one, Ireland has a very solid plan. You know, and successive governments have committed to continuing to build out rental property and and residential property at scale. That's that's hugely reassuring because some other countries have these issues but they don't have the plan. Okay. So I think that's really important. And, and our plan is extremely detailed. You know, we can show 16 point plans and progression year to year, really important. On the other side, in terms of the pressure, I think having multinationals in Ireland and the, the corporation tax benefits, the personal taxes from that community are giving us the wherewithal 
to put in place public programs to build out housing. So, you know, and as well as that, they're extremely high value, but actually relatively low volume. You know, if you look at our, our numbers, we are we had 12,000 net jobs per annum thereabouts for the last five years. We've had a brilliant run. That's not causing a housing crisis of itself, but the, but the value generated by that segment is giving an outsized contribution to the fix. Um, we're obviously in the middle of, I hate saying it now, but unprecedented times uh, with COVID-19. But the good thing that has come from it is the innovation and the, seeing businesses innovate, finding new ways of working, embrace remote working. And I know a lot of people who are now considering moving away from some of the cities to get their, their work done. Do you think that, again, that could be an, an incentive for people to come here, work here, set up their companies? If you could run a big tech company from Sligo and go surfing on your lunch break, that's pretty ideal. That is very nice. And we've seen some some senior executives and companies do that. I think we will see more of a trend of that. People consider themselves mobile global workers. I think, though, it's important that there is a double-edged element to that. We're going to have to work really hard on the Ireland proposition and ensuring that we continue to be relevant as a location. And, you know, some companies have flagged going completely distributed. Others have been more nuanced. Some are very office-based. I think it'll settle somewhere in the middle, you know, that people will want a centre and a locus for their business and we'll have employees as you just said regionally based around that within a jurisdiction and that seems to be the central point of current discussion so we see a huge opportunity in that. Over the last number of years on this program, we've featured some brilliant Irish companies. The one that pops into my brain right now is Teamwork based in Cork. They're a fantastic Irish success story. How important are they in terms of the Ireland story, that the homegrown talent who have made an international footprint and it's not a multinational, it's not, you know, somebody else coming in here. We, we made them, they're, they're one of us. Absolutely vital. You know, if you, if you look at Teamwork, they're a super company and there's been so many companies over the years. Many of them have actually been acquired by multinationals. So if we're talking software as a service with Salesforce, uh, which came out of multinational routes. But if you look at Workday, for instance, mm-hmm. who also have over a thousand people in Dublin, They've, they bought an Irish company, Cape Clear Technologies, in 2009, which had about 23 or four people from memory at that point and have, have now grown a hugely successful team. So I think, I think that's important. Uh, but then equally, that Irish companies grow to real scale and succeed at scale, like Teamwork is heading towards, like Fleetmatics, uh, which was eventually purchased by Verizon, uh, OpenNet Telecom, which we've seen in recent weeks. If you look at those examples, huge proof points. And it's very important to multinationals. I I often talk about the innovation coefficient of Ireland. So one element of that coefficient is that Irish companies grow and succeed on their own and uh, hugely important to foreign investors because it shows we're not just one trick ponies in the tech investment world. And you've mentioned before about sort of the sales pitch and the work that you do. How is that going to change in the era of COVID? Because this isn't going to go away. I'd wish it would, but it's not going to go away in you know two months time. It's going to be around for a while. How has it changed? More so, we, we had a lot of pipeline investors who hadn't invested in Ireland previously in Q1. Now, some of those had already made a site visit, so they'd, they'd come in and, and done the journey around Ireland and evaluated locations and made a decision for the, where they want to be. Uh, some of those have since closed out their investments, hired people and started, which is brilliant. Uh, we haven't been able to bring f- people physically into the country for the last six months. So during that period, we've we've done our itineraries virtually. So we've 
we've been part of the Zoom generation in terms of showing people Ireland remotely. And that's incredibly powerful. Uh, we're already seeing some emerging decisions for regional locations, actually, because you can have, a, typically when we drive people, you can have them in Letterkenny on one day and maybe Sligo the next day and possibly Galway the third day. And if you only have three days, that's it. But actually today we can have someone in Letterkenny at 10 and in Waterford at 11 mm -hmm. and do different meetings and see different aspects of what Ireland has to offer. So that's been incredibly positive. Uh, there is a point, though, where people will need to physically visit. And we're watching and working with government, obviously, around public health restrictions, green lists and, and travel and anticipating when we can do that. I think we will see a little bit of a gap between people making decisions in principle and finalising them based on travel restrictions. The, uh, the the political ties to our tech communities is, is always quite interesting because every decision that politicians make and the governments make impacts, you know, everything about how business is done in this country. Uh, we are obviously eagerly awaiting the full rollout of the National Broadband Plan, for example. That would be a fantastic day for Ireland once that is complete. Has the IDA always worked closely with um, the the different governments to ensure that the priorities of the potential businesses coming to Ireland are served? And has there been any road bumps along the way? Yes and yes. Okay, great. <laughs> so, tell me all. <laughs> so I think I'm not going to tell you them all. So we do. We all we work very closely with government on policy. We have a policy team. Um, one of our functions for our clients is to gather together their views on policy and ensure they're represented to government in a balanced way. We don't we don't go with every single priority of every client. We try to do something that that has a collective good. Uh, government doesn't listen to them all. Government in Ireland is is very independent and will not pivot its strategies just to meet what companies want. So that's the yes to the second piece of your question. Uh, government's measured. And one of the one of the hallmarks of Irish government that's been super important to us is that we are stable from a policy point of view. That's been true in tax. It's been true in other aspects of regulation. And we don't react to every changing priority. If we did, we'd lose that stability reputation. And that would be much worse for us than any fallout from not taking a tactical decision every now and again. Mm -hmm. Very diplomatic answer. Not diplomatic <laughs> at all, it's true. <laughs> um, in terms of the tech uh, companies and the changing culture they have brought, you know, one of my favourite things about being a tech correspondent is I, I get to wear jeans and Converse to pretty much everything. It's fantastic. Has the nature of entertainment by the IDA had to change over the years? Because sometimes you can go to very formal events and it's, you know, dicky bows and proper dinner jackets. But very often tech events are that bit more casual and there's a hoodie on every single table. Yeah, I actually own one or two IDA promotional hoodies. <laughs> Amazing. To, uh, I have to say. So we do. I mean, we we in our entertainment, we conform to what what is the norm, you know. So uh, I think for West Coast, for instance, open neck shirt and slacks, uh, as you see me today, tends to be the uniform as it is for companies. So you, you try to align. I mean, our our job is a relationship game. And if you if you come at people as a as a pinstripe civil servant, you're going to get what you deserve. <laughs> you need to you need to align yourself to what the client does because you put people in their comfort zone when you start from there. Looking at the development that has changed over the last twenty years, and it is crazy that two thousand was twenty years ago now. Is there a sense of pride in terms of how much change has happened in Ireland at the hands of the IDA? Huge. Huge pride. I mean, we are, uh, Pamela Newman's book on uh, Silicon Docks, you've, I'm sure you've read it or mm -hmm. seen it, it kind of encapsulates a lot of the first 15 years of the internet uh, landing on Silicon Docks. Um, 
huge pride. A lot of my colleagues worked so hard to make that happen. That was long before my time in IDA. I joined in 2013, so I can't take virtually any of the credit. But over a short period of time, we landed um, data center investments from people like Microsoft in the early noughties, Google in 2003, uh, Amazon in the mid noughties, Facebook shortly after 2010, you know, and all those other names, eBay, PayPal, Salesforce, obviously, Workday, um, and, you know, there's huge pride that we've been able to build that ecosystem. Uh, some have been much harder than others. Uh, we've had to influence policy. We've had to influence the clients themselves. But we can now justifiably claim to be the Silicon Valley of Europe. And uh, like I said earlier, we're never off the list when someone, when an internet or tech business is looking for its European home. That was Leo Clancy of the IDA. Coming up next, we'll hear from the country lead at Salesforce about how and why they came to Dublin. Embedded Tech and Town on News Talk. Thanks to Salesforce. Celebrating 20 years helping Irish businesses, people and communities grow. This is Embedded Tech in Town with Jess Kelly here on News Talk. We know that Ireland has plenty to offer. But what are the clinchers when it comes to moving your business to the Emerald Isle? I spoke to David Dempsey, the country lead and general manager at Salesforce here in Ireland, to find out more about their story. Well, Salesforce is the uh, number one CRM company uh, globally. We uh, we were started originally back in 1999, and then arrived in Ireland shortly after that. We we set up or officially set up uh, in Ireland in mid 2000. Uh, so we've been here for 20 years now. This is our 20th anniversary. And tell me a little bit about the process of uh, selecting Ireland as the base outside the US and so quickly into the history of the company. Yeah, it's interesting, Jess, because it, it was very early because, you know, the company was only founded in August of 1999 and we start uh, talking to them, uh, Mark Benioff and Parker Harris, the original founders, we start talk- talking to them in the early part of 2000. So that was very early for Salesforce to expand internationally because, you know, as a fledgling company with maybe, I don't know, there's about 35 people in San Francisco at that time, there wasn't even a first release of the product. So it was very early. And uh, to be honest, uh, it was earlier than the company thought about coming into Ireland or coming uh, going anyplace outside of the US. The focus was on the, the US market then. But uh, I had heard about them through a piece in Business Week uh, magazine. There was a little inside piece to say this new company had started in San Francisco and they were going to make enterprise software as easy to consume as buying a book on Amazon. And, you know, that was completely uh, new. It was a new business model. It was a new industry model because traditional, you know, enterprise software wasn't easy to consume or wasn't easy uh, to implement. And when I saw this little piece, I, you know, myself and two colleagues of mine, we were in Oracle at the time, uh, we saw this and uh, it sounded very exciting to the extent that we said, well, OK, well, let's reach out to this company. Let's let's write to them. We sent them an email uh, to the CEO at the time and just said, look, this sounds like a great product. We like this idea. And let's talk some more because we're uh, we think we we'll, uh, you know we can bring you into Europe, and and really that's where it came about. I mean it was very early for the for Salesforce, it was very very early for us, and it was very early for this whole SaaS or cloud computing business model. But but that's where it came from at the time. It's fantastic to hear that sort of a shot in the dark like that. You know, writing to someone and and you know, putting yourselves out there uh, and to hear that it, it sort of came good because obviously uh, Salesforce is in Ireland 20 years now. Was there much convincing needed to convince the company to come to Ireland because we didn't necessarily have the big tech reputation that we have today? 
Yeah, and, and that's a good question. It, it, it's interesting because there was there was a, a lot of convincing on a lot of parts. It was the us convincing Salesforce that it should do it at the time? I guess uh, it was us, uh, John Appleby, Fergus, Sloster, myself, the three of us, um, convincing ourselves that this was the right thing to do. And then we had to almost convince all of our own contacts and all of our own peers and even our families that this was the right thing to do, that we should, uh, you know, uh, Make this investment, or or, or 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 make this big bet on this fledgling company called Salesforce. Because when you think about it, um, you know, back then it was it was year two thousand, so the internet was was still pretty much in its infancy. I mean, it was around, but it wasn't really the commodity that it is, or you know, as ubiquitous as it is now today. So, uh, you know, we had to really we were betting our futures and betting the future of of. Uh, you know of our opportunity in Ireland on on the take up of that, but really what convinced us was this this model, this new business model. You know, I had been for eleven years. Um, I, I was probably eleven or twelve years with Oracle at that stage. I, uh, I was with uh, Telecom before that, but I'd spent all my uh, my technical career in the enterprise computing space. And it was a very difficult space and it wasn't a space that was available to many. You know, it was expensive for companies to get in and uh, install enterprise level uh, computing power. It needed a big infrastructure. You know, you needed your own people to do it. it, it uh, the, the lead times were very long and it was a fraught, you know, even in terms of whether it would be successful with the implementation. So the idea that uh, that this industry could be democratized by making that power of that computing power available uh, to the masses or to the uh, to, to a much wider uh, commercial audience than previously was available to uh, by renting it as a subscription service. I mean, that was a massive change to the industry and it was a massive um, business model change as well, because, you know, it meant that it was a democratization. It meant that, you know, the smaller businesses could have access to the same computing power as only the biggest businesses, the biggest banks and the biggest commercial institutes could afford up until then. And, you know, that really was a big opportunity, but it was a big shift. And, uh, you know, uh, for Ireland to pitch for it or for us to pitch for it out of Ireland back then was, was very unusual as well. In the first episode of this series, we were talking about how, you know, the Nokia 5110 was the biggest phone in the country and we were still using floppy disks and so on. How did you go about you know, pitching to customers and winning customers over? Because as you said, the, the internet was in its infancy. A lot of business was still being done pen and paper, old school style. This was a revolution in terms of getting things done for your business. Yeah, and I think that our pitch was something that was, was based around that because um, all of this technology was was in its infancy, but there was a huge cohort of business that felt excluded from the traditional technology industry or the traditional software industry, you know, because it was very expensive. And if you were running an SME or a small medium enterprise or, you know, you were an entrepreneur and you had started your own business, you knew that you really needed this access uh, to, to customer relation management software because it really was a differentiator in terms of, of enabling you to reach out to your customers and, and to connect with your customers. But it just wasn't available to you at a price point that you could afford or a piece of technology you could afford. So I think that, you know, that's really the convincing 
it what we weren't necessarily convincing those who already had access to uh, world class CRM at that time, but we were pitching to the market that felt excluded from that because it simply couldn't afford it or didn't have the wherewithal to implement it. And we were saying to that to that other market to say, well, look at here's access to this uh, to this fantastic product, and we'll deliver it to you on a subscription basis so you can afford it and just. Our, our big message was looking to trust us and uh, trust us with your data and trust us that we would protect your data, that we would be around, that we would, uh, you know, we would grow with your business. And I think that's why trust is such an important part of our business model, because right from the very get go, our early adopters and those who joined us in the early stages really were trusting us in the same way, uh, trusting us to bring them to this new space that they was previously excluded. They were previously excluded from. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of having an office and a presence in Ireland. Not only do we have, um, you know, customers that uh, are now signed up and using uh, your platforms, but also it's a gateway to Europe. So talk a little bit about the importance of having that Irish operation. I, I think that, you know, you're exactly right when you say that it's a gateway to Europe, because if you look back at, uh, you know, the time of, of Salesforce being established and, and Salesforce as it is now. I mean, it's we're right in the heart of San Francisco. So we're very much in the Californian tech industry space. And, you know, Europe at that stage, if you go back to uh, 2000 and, and, you know, in the years since that Europe, really parts of Europe were were quite far advanced with the take up of internet, particularly around the uh, Scandinavian countries. You know, uh, English was the business language in Europe. And yet Europe was something that uh, the California tech industry didn't really understand back then. So if you look at Ireland or you look at Dublin, we were the perfect uh, middle ground or, 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 or meeting place for both of those two markets. So you had the US and Ireland obviously very well connected. And then you had Ireland as a key player in Europe as well. And I think that for that reason, Ireland was a safe entry point into Europe or a friendly entry point into Europe uh, for US businesses like like Salesforce and even for, for US businesses now. You know, we're very much European players and, and very well respected in Europe, Ireland as a country. And I think that was our pitch to Salesforce as well and, and why, uh, you know, Dublin became the European headquarters of Salesforce, that we were that trusted middle ground between Europe and the US. And we knew how to interact and how to bring both sides together uh, in a sort of consistent and in a meaningful way with us, uh, you know, being equal, equally trusted players to both sides. Earlier in the show, we heard from Leo Clancy of the IDA, who told us a little bit about the work that they do and the relationships that they build themselves. And then they also help um, sort of nurture and foster when companies come to Ireland. Was there much of a role for the IDA in, in the bringing of Salesforce to Ireland? Well, it's interesting actually because I, I have a fantastic respect for Leo. Uh, you know, I talk with him quite frequently. Uh, quite frequently, when we have, we need help from the IDA, and 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 they're a huge supporter of us. But it's interesting actually because most people would assume that a company like Salesforce came to Ireland, uh, you know, um, with big IDA grants and with the IDA having pitched for uh, to bring our business in. But because Salesforce was so small back then, we had only uh, 40 people, it probably wasn't even on the IDA's radar. In fact, it wasn't on the IDA radar because it was a company that was only four or five months old when we reached out to Salesforce directly. So we were, it wasn't an IDA driven uh, inward investment or, or FDI investment. It was driven by the three of us reaching out directly to Salesforce. But at the same time, 
we have a massive partnership with the IDA. We've never sought any grant aid from them, but every time we look for their help, and we often look for their help around, uh, you know, around infrastructure or around advice for, uh, uh, around advice with government or or just generally um, around uh, our thoughts about how Ireland can succeed in this in the sort of tech space that we that we operate in. So we have a massive partnership with them. Uh, but not granted. And I think that, you know, Leo and his colleagues do a fantastic job in, in finding the new sales forces and bringing them in. And I like to think that we were strong partners with, with the idea in the early stages and that we were almost a poster child for the cloud industry. In fact, we probably were at that stage because we were the first enterprise cloud computing company, uh, pure cloud play at, at that enterprise level. And, you know, once we got up and running, once that cloud industry or the SaaS industry as it was then became established, a lot of the uh, big companies now in the SaaS space, when they were starting first, they'd look to see what Salesforce were doing and they'd look to see where we were. And when they saw that we were in Dublin and in Dublin right from the very get-go and that we had built a very successful European headquarters out of Dublin, well, then they, they tended to come to where we were. And I like to think that we were a big influence on, you know, the size of the cloud or SaaS footprint that, that Ireland now has the tech industry, uh, you know, by being the first in this space here in, in Dublin. So a very strong relationship with the IDA, but but not driven by grants, it's driven by by a mutual respect for uh, for what Dublin can offer to the industry. Let's talk about the initial uh, Dublin office. Um, where is it? Where was it? How many people were in there to begin with? And how has it expanded over time? Yeah, it's exciting in the early stages. The very first office was actually in, in Sandyford in, in Arena House. It was a shared office. We, we rented two rooms um, in a, a shared office building in Arena House in Sandyford. We couldn't get anything else because we were... We were a dot-com, remember, and this was 2000 and the dot-com bubble uh, was was just about the burst or had burst. And we were, if if you're, I won't even ask you to remember back then, but the reality is back then that most office space was owned by uh, institutions, you know, pension funds and, and institutional leases, long-term leases, 20-year leases. So we tried to get all the space. We tried to find space in these big office buildings. And of course, nobody would rent to us. They were asking for 20 year leases and we were only four months old. It didn't, it didn't make any sense to us. And uh, so we really didn't have any office space. So we, so we took this serviced office out in Sandyford and then uh, we kept looking around and we were at this stage, probably only about maybe eight or nine, 10 people. And we were another dot-com in, in the midst of many other dot-coms at the time when dot-coms weren't that, weren't that trendy or acceptable. But we, we, we found a fantastic opportunity. We were so lucky. We found that Powers Courthouse in Enniscurry, and, and you know this, Jess, is the one uh, where everybody goes now with uh, you know, all the retail shops and people uh, go there on the tourist trail now. But Powers Courthouse had been rebuilt. It had had a fire, I think, in the house been rebuilt it had retail on the ground floor and that this fantastic space in the main house in powers court and the upper level so the whole upper level was one single open plan uh, set of offices and the family there who owned it uh, were looking for a tenant but they didn't want a long-term lease there and they wanted a different tenant and we didn't long, want a long-term lease but we wanted a different space to be in to differentiate ourselves so we took space in Powers Court House in Anascari and we spent uh, a very happy uh, almost two years out there in Anascari in, in uh, with 12 people initially. And then we grew it, I think, to about 20 or 30 when we were out there. It was fantastic. 
What a gorgeous we a place! As our, uh, we, we had a Voca as our as our as our canteen. It wasn't very good for our figures, but it was fantastic. I'm so jealous. I, I was just there over the weekend, and it is the most relaxing place in 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 Ireland. I would argue it is just stunning. So a fantastic location. Uh, but you, it was so it was so funny though because we used to have the uh, the tourists would come in and they thought we were part of the part of the offering <laughs> out there. We'd often be at our desks and people would come in with cameras and trying to take photographs of us and whatever. Our wedding guests they used to have weddings there as well yeah. in the ballroom and sometimes the wedding guests uh, have a, uh, a couple of beers too many and they'd wander up into the office as well so it was good fun. Oh fantastic that's very unique uh, but you, you mentioned there that you weren't after a long lease and as gorgeous as Paris Court is it probably wasn't ideal for a company that was growing and that wanted to just sort of be connected into different communities. No, it wasn't ideal, but you know the reality is, is that it allowed us to box above our weight uh, back then because we were, you know, a dot com in the midst of many dot coms. We were the one in the stately home, you know, and it allowed <laughs> us to differentiate locally, and also it allowed us to differentiate with our American colleagues. They they thought it was a castle we were in, and they thought this was fascinating. But the 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 reality is, uh, you know, that it wasn't practical because, uh, uh, you know, back then. And, and and again, it's hard for it's hard sometimes for people to imagine this then. But back then, when we moved in there, we had a four megabit lease line, and we wanted to double that to eight megs. And to do that, I actually we had to physically dig a trench from the gate of power scored up the house, wow. and whatever that is, nearly a mile, and put in physical cable to get eight megs. And I'm saying to the Americans, my colleagues in America, to say, look, uh, we, we want to expand our our connectivity here. Send us money so we can uh, dig a trench and put in a cable. And it was kind of that was uh, a little bit difficult to get through. But 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 anyway, so it was perfect at the time. But the, the reality is that from a technical point of view and from a location point of view, we outgrew, outgrew it in, you know, in the 18 months. And then we decided to move back into into the business, uh, a business park environment. And that's why we, you know, Sandyford, we liked at the start. Uh, we liked the location. We liked the connectivity, the technical connectivity and also the the connectivity you know from a transport point of view and we found a great space in the Trintec building uh, you know in the uh, the old um, uh, Leopardstown office park and Trintec had a building had a couple of buildings in there and one of them had some space in it so uh, Sir Maguire was our landlord there for uh, for four or five years in in the Trintec space and Sandyford is you know on the first show we were out in the Silicon Docks uh, where I know your new building is under construction at the moment but we also got the Green Line Lewis then out to Sandyford and walked through that area and that's where I grew up and it's where I live at the moment and it is a fantastic part of town but even 20 years ago it wasn't really seen as you know a tech hub of Dublin it was just an industrial estate where businesses were and that was the height of it how does the synergy um flow i suppose from a salesforce point of view between the sandyford office and then the new building that uh, you will hopefully be moving into before long well it's interesting because you're right sandyford wasn't the, the tech center then it, it, it is now quite tech centric because a lot of uh, our peer companies are out there as well as ourselves. But if you think of Sandyford back then, and we got a decent office space, we didn't really want to be, you know, the tech hub at that stage would have been uh, the 
the business park, uh, East Point Business Park, would be a lot of tech companies in there, or th some of the other, you know, the Ballycoolin type uh, places that um, we didn't really want to go because we we felt we weren't that type of tech company. We felt we were the new breed of tech company. We didn't really need to be in town because uh, we, you know, we weren't doing a huge amount of business in Ireland. Our business was pitched into Europe, so Sandyford we felt gave us uh, a very happy middle ground to that and that allowed us to be in 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 uh, you know a progressive and and new business park uh, but but you know one that differentiated uh, from the other ones that were, that were already the, the tech companies were already in and also our our business was driven over the internet so mm -hmm. we didn't need to have you know we needed to have good quality offices but we needed to have ones that would allow us to connect into europe uh, you know, rather than doing business locally. So that the fact that people could physically get out to Sandyford was, was great. That was the big plus for us. But then, you know, you're probably familiar with our offices, uh, Jess, the ones that we've won in Central Park, we've mm -hmm. won in the atrium in Sandyford. And the one common piece with both of those offices, they are the two buildings that are physically closest to the Lewis stations. It's not possible to get closer to a Lewis station in Sandyford. You know, we're on the Central Park line, we're at the Central Park stop and we're at the Sandyford stop. And that really meant that we could have people who wanted to live in town who could travel out to us on the Lewis, travel out of town on the Lewis, out to us. And just the offices are right there. So that was the connectivity between us and the connection between us and town, because a lot of our people uh, want to live in town. You know, those who come to Dublin for a few years are not uh, necessarily from Ireland, they're from Europe and they spend a couple of years in Dublin. A lot of those people want to live in town. And it means they can come out on the Lewis uh, to get out to Sandyford. And equally, those who drive to the office can get around the M50 and, and easy to get to Sandyford as well. You mentioned there about uh, your staff. How have you found the tech talent pool in Ireland over the last 20 years? Because uh, in my conversation with Leo Clancy, I remember I, I mentioned that, you know, when I was doing my leaving cert back in 2007, we were told that our generation needed to up our game when it came to European languages, for example, because there were tech companies coming to town and perhaps we weren't, you know, uh, adequately equipped to take up those jobs. How have you found the tech talent pool here? I think uh, there's always a lot of demand on the talent pool. I, I think that your point around the languages is is completely right. Uh, you know, we are doing a better job in, in upping our uh, language capacity. But I think that you know what we might have lacked in language skills uh, from the talent pool that came out of the universities. I think we made up for that in a massive way by our grasp of technology and our our technical capabilities. So we had a very good technical talent pool. We didn't necessarily always have the languages, but I think it's interesting because when you look at us and we came, you know, we think first as, you know, in this in this cloud space, in the SaaS space, others followed us, as I said earlier on, because they looked to see where we were and they came into it. Uh, they, they tended to come to the places that we were in. And then very quickly, Dublin built for itself almost, uh, almost by accident. Well, I guess, you know, through the efforts of the IDA, but, but I think by the fact that others like uh, the fact that others like ourselves were, were already established there, we quickly built a reputation as being the tech hub for Europe. So that meant that our capacity, our language capacity was filled by people who wanted to spend time in Ireland. And we matched that with our own uh, our own innate technical capabilities and, and the, the quality of the uh, the quality of the university graduates that we were producing from Ireland. And that combination of our own grads, because we didn't have enough grads uh, really coming to fill the positions that all the tech companies, uh, you know, very quickly built in. 
in Ireland over a, maybe a, a short period of about a decade. But we finished, we, we, we supplemented that with the Europeans who were coming in who wanted to be part of this new movement in Dublin, this new tech, uh, technology centre for Europe that was established in Dublin. So I think that's the combination of our own grads and, and uh, you know, the Europeans who want to spend a couple of years in Dublin come to Dublin uh, for the opportunities. I think that was really the, the, the secret sauce of the talent pool. Yeah, and a beautiful thing that happens when you do hire talent into the country is that it changes our communities and it changes the people who we see, whether it is on the Lewis, on the Dart, on the bus. It brings in different life experiences and so on. How aware is Salesforce of the impact it has on the wider community? Is that something that's kind of, it comes up in you know management meetings or strategy meetings, that type of thing? I think we're very aware of it, and it's not that it necessarily comes up in 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 meetings at that level, but it comes up in one of you know we have four values in Salesforce: customer success, because you know we're a subscription service, a rental service basically, so our customers need to be successful for us to continue because so they pay us every month. Uh, innovation, uh, you know, we've always had this value of innovation because we've innovated the industry. Trust, because we're asking people to uh, to trust us with their most precious commodity, their data. But then our fourth value has been from the very get-go has been equality. And I think that, you know, really this is where it comes up that uh, we we have a massive awareness in Salesforce that we, uh, you know, business could be a platform for change and that we offer we offered an equality or an openness or a democratization of the industry itself, of the technology in the very first stages, but we're also offering an openness and bringing a sense of equality into the into the industry and into the people who work in the industry. So I think that's something that we're really aware of, that Ireland, you know, we started in what was very much an island and, and was sometimes very insular. And I think we think that our industry has really opened Ireland to the rest of the world. It's opened it to the rest of the world because the rest of the world sees Ireland as as a massively innovative centre. You know, in spite of our only five million population and our size, because because of the innovation we we bring to the companies like us that are here. But also, you know, it's 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 changed how we think about the world. We see ourselves as global players now rather than being, you know, an Ireland uh, an Ireland that was an island and, and really didn't interact with uh, with much other than our closest neighbour in the UK. So I think Ireland's a much different society now. And I think that if you look at Salesforce, if you come to our offices, you know, we have so many different nationalities in our office and so many different uh, countries that we serve around the world. And yet we're still Irish. You know, mm-hmm. this is the new Ireland. And I think that Salesforce really... Uh, you know, it hold itself up as being, you know, a great example of, of how we can all do well in the new Ireland. I think uh, a lot of the tech companies are great at shouting when they have, you know, new products or new updates and so on. But one thing that often uh, kind of happens on the sideline, but I think needs more attention is the work that's done in terms of giving back to communities and to charities. And I know you do a lot with Kamara Education. I saw recently that you're supporting TU Dublin with, I think it's a $300,000 grant for their diversity scheme. Tell me a little bit about why these types of initiatives are important and, you know, why you don't just plough on and focus on the technology. Why is it important to give back to the communities? Yeah, and, uh, you know, you're right, because uh, we, we did uh, make a grant to TU Dublin of 300k and, and of 400,000 to educate together. They were both announced just last week. And, you know, in the time that we've been here, we've granted almost 5 million to local local businesses. But I think that that, I mean... 
I've been in this, this industry for a long time, for 35 years now. Um, and, you know, so I've seen companies who get successful and feel guilty about their success. And then, you know, write the big golf check, you know, the big presentation mm-hmm. check where they'll make a presentation to a local charity. And that, that's fine, but it's, it's not what Salesforce is about. Because when we were started back in 1999, separate from the new business model, which was software as a service, subscription service, where you pay as used for enterprise level software, we also, at the very first day that Salesforce was established in August 1999, it set aside uh, a sep- into a separate company. It set aside 1% of its equity uh, into this not-for-profit company. And it, it it built this new philanthropic model, the 111 model, where we give 1% of our equity, 1% of our employee time, and 1% of our product to not-for-profits around the world. And, you know, you think that, back in 99 and 2000, 1% of the Salesforce equity had no value. And then what our market cap is today, it's maybe 170 or $180 billion. Obviously it has a lot of value now, but I think even more than that, it's the fact that uh, if you have fantastic local not-for-profits like Kamara or like Trocra or whomever it is, and you know, previously they would have been running their business on post-its or uh, spreadsheets at best, but you know, handwritten, whatever it is. and now they have the opportunity to have the same access to the same enterprise, global enterprise level software that you know our biggest customers like AT&T might be using. The, the exact same software, the exact same uh, computing power is available to the not-for-profits to run their business, their not-for-profit business, you know, Troker to run their business. And because we make 1% of our employee time available to them, they get the exact same product for free, but they get the same quality of people to implement for them as might have implemented for our biggest customers in Ireland, like Ulster Bank or like Kingspan. So, you know, we have 2,000, over 2,000 people in Dublin, and each one each one of us gets seven days a year, 56 hours to to contribute to a not-for-profit of our, of, of our own individual choice. So in the time we've been here, we've contributed almost quarter of a million hours of the best technical talent time for free to not-for-profits like Kamara and like Trocra uh, to use Salesforce to run their own business. And I think that's a real differentiator, that 111 model. And now that's become pledge 1%. It's, you know, a lot of other startup businesses would have the same philanthropic model as, as, as we implemented back, uh, back over 20 years ago. You know, it's a good trend to, to to be involved with and to also put your money and your time and your efforts where your mouth is because it's very easy to say we will do this, but it's a very different thing to, to do it and to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to do it as well. My final question is, um, 20 years in Ireland is an incredible achievement and you have done so much in that time. I don't know if you have a crystal ball under your desk there, but uh, what's coming down the tracks for the next 20? I think... I don't have the crystal ball, but but I think what I can see coming very quickly is this, you know, back, if, if you go back a year, 18 months ago, we, uh, people tended, our industry tended to talk about the fourth industrial revolution, you know, and, and this being the digitization. But I think that, you know, we all knew we were in the fourth industrial revolution. But if you think of what's happened in the last six months, that pandemic and the whole uh, situation, you know, we have around the world with, with, uh, with coronavirus, is that it's it's just roll the fourth industrial revolution on so quickly. So the digital transformation that we knew was coming, that we thought would come, you know, uh, slowly over time and, and would eventually uh, change the world. 
that slowness has gone out but it's happening now there's a digital imperative right now and you know the whole pandemic thing has has forced companies to think about complete digital transformation in a timeline that they could have never really imagined beforehand so i think if you ask me what the future will look like it'll be that this digital transformation becomes the normal everybody is saying the new norm you know the whole health situation what's mm-hmm. what will the new normal look like but the reality is that uh, in my view that normal will be a digital world a digital world that we're right in the middle of of uh, you know of transforming our businesses to now and i think that salesforce is really well positioned uh, to help companies to get to that digital world in a in a trusted and safe way because you know our customers already have trusted us for 20 years to keep transforming and keep innovating and now they've got this massive imperative to do it quickly and, and i think we're there uh, to help them to get them to that space. David Dempsey, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome, Jess. Nice to talk. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full up on newstalk.com. You can subscribe to this series on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcasts from. My thanks to researcher Sonia Tutti from me, Jess Kelly. Until next week, take care. Embedded Tech and Town on News Talk. Thanks to Salesforce. Celebrating 20 years helping Irish businesses, people and communities grow.